Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Ruth Brownstein, who is the author of Prophets and Patriots, Faith in Democracy Across the Political Divide. The book is published by University of California Press this year, and I have the pleasure to talk with Ruth right now. Ruth, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much, Heath. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thank you for sharing this really interesting book that cuts across So many very interesting things. Before we get to it, would you just share a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been in the past? Um, Tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, So my name is Ruth Bronstein. I'm an assistant professor in the sociology department at the University of Connecticut. And uh, before I came to Connecticut, I was actually, um, I did my PhD in the sociology department at NYU. So I was in your hometown of New York City for a long time. And I'm excited to be here and talk about the book. Yeah, yeah. It's... um... Uh, a, a book that, that just comes at uh, subject matter in such an interesting way with such interesting methods, and I think the findings are so numerous. Um, essentially, this is a very close examination of two seemingly different groups, and you, you instead of finding difference, find a good deal in, in common between them. Uh, why don't we start with, with the group, uh, the, the prophets, uh, as, as the title suggests. H- how did you come to meet this group? And, and maybe you could tell us just a little bit about their history. Sure. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, um, it was really it was an opportunity to spend time with two groups that were very different. And the, the prophets um, were a Tea Party group that was just starting to organize around the time that I began my field work. And I actually came to them second. So I started the project um, because uh, I had been interested in more progressive religious grassroots organizing. And um, I had actually encountered the national organization that the interfaith group was a part of in a previous project. And I knew that I wanted to do fieldwork in one of their local organizations to understand how they organized at the grassroots level. And while I was developing a project that dealt with that, I, I began to be really interested in thinking about um, doing a left-right comparison. Um, and it was around that time that the Tea Party emerged. And so it was fortuitous that I was able to enter both groups um, not long after they actually had both began um, and around the same time. Um, and so just as a background on the Patriots, they, um, like I said, were emerged and organized around the time that the National Tea Party began. So um in 2009, um, groups first started to organize Tea Party rallies. This group began organizing more self-consciously in 2010, um, shortly before I began my field work. And uh, they were a relatively large Tea Party group at the time. And as I explained in the book, they had grown relatively rapidly um, in terms of both their online presence, the number of people on their email list, um, and also in terms of how many people they were turning out for rallies um, and other kinds of meetings, um, candidate meet and greets, um, and other 
activities that they were organizing at the early stage of their activities. Um, so I was able to jump right in and, and be there along with them as they were figuring out what it meant to be organizing locally in order to become more engaged and informed citizens. And how open were they to your participation um, in what they were doing? Did, was it, uh, um, were you actively involved in, in media? What was, uh, what was that, uh, that interaction like? Well, I, I first um, became, sort of got in contact with them through the woman who ran the group, who in the book I call Linda. And she was incredibly open to my coming and studying the book. And that was really one of the things that I tried to portray in the book was that they were very public about their activities. They were very open. They, you know, they knew that I was there as a researcher and they wanted to help me in any way that I could to understand them better. Um, but they were also open to me simply being there. And, you know, I think that they hoped that while I was there, I would maybe absorb some new ideas and come to see their work differently and maybe think about politics differently. Um, so they, they knew that I was liberal. Um, they knew that I didn't agree with them on many issues of policy, but that I was there with an open mind. And then they were, they were open to me being there and um, willing to answer all my questions. And how about the other group, the, the group referred to as, as interfaith? What, what's their background and, and how did you come to them? So they're a local affiliate of a national network of faith-based community organizing coalitions called the PICO National Network. And that is one of a, about three or four national networks that are involved in faith-based, faith-based community organizing, which is also sometimes called congregation-based organizing or institution-based organizing. And they, uh, there are about 200 or so of those coalitions around the country. And um, what they really are focused on doing is bringing people together, mostly through um, existing organizations. So they organize within congregations, for example, within a community. And they believe that their power really comes from being able to mobilize a diverse group of people within a community. And so they will try and organize multiple different faith communities. So Catholic parishes, Christian churches, mostly mainline Protestant, um, but some evangelical churches in, in some um, coalitions, um, synagogues, mosques, and then in some cases, other kinds of community groups, PTAs um, and things like that. Um, and they come together and mostly focus on very local issues in their community um, to start. But because they're also plugged into a national network, they are sometimes able to work together with other groups that are facing similar kinds of issues to them and think about how they can exert power at a higher level, whether that's at the state level or at the national level. And uh, PICO has had um, a, a lot of success at the national level, particularly around issues of healthcare care um, reform. They were very involved with um, advocating for the children's health care reform um, several years ago, and then we're also involved in the more recent negotiations um, around the Affordable Care Act. And so that was actually the moment that um, I was starting Fieldwork was when the local groups and also the national network were thinking a lot about issues about healthcare as well as about immigration, about housing, um, about crime and violence in their communities, and a range of other issues. Now, one of the ways that you compare um, interfaith and patriots is to shift from ends to means. Mm-hmm. 
why is looking at the means through which each of these organizations work a useful focus, given their ends seem to be quite different? Right. So when we when we think about groups like these, and particularly when we compare groups on the left and the right, the purpose of doing that is often to understand the differences in their policy attitudes, um, and in particular, why it is that, for example, one group supports healthcare reform and one group seeks to block it. Why one group, you know, wants to um, to support undocumented immigrants in their communities, and some people believe that those people um, are illegally here and wish to deport them. Right. So, getting to the to the bottom of those questions, and there's been a lot of really good and insightful research about that. Um, and, and I was originally interested in those kinds of questions, but once I got there, I realized that the specific issues that these groups were focused on were coming and going, that the, the issues themselves were not actually why a lot of the people that I met were involved in these groups. They were involved in the groups at a more basic level in order to simply be more engaged in the political process to learn how it worked and how they can effectively shape outcomes. Um, and especially outcomes that they felt really directly affected their lives in their communities. Um, they, when they talked about this, they had really similar concerns about the political process and the extent to which people like them, which by which they meant sort of ordinary people who are not professional activists or professional lobbyists um, were not really given a voice within that, within that system. And they were, you know, they were critical as much of their own elected officials, people from their own party, as they were people sort of on the other side, um, because they just generally believed that the system was answering to some other set of interests than them. And so their reasons for, particip for participating in these groups was, was actually strikingly similar. And then what they were actually doing in the groups I came to see was also quite similar in the sense that they, a lot of the time that they spent was informing themselves about how the process worked through which a particular issue was going through the legislature or a decision was being made about a particular policy in their community. And so it was informing themselves about the political process and about these issues and then determining how they could best exert influence over that process. And so I, I turned my attention to that because I thought that it was something that we actually knew much less about um, and that brought some different aspects of these groups into focus. Now, religion matters to both of these groups and in some different ways. And, and you write about those different ways. I wonder if you talk a little bit about those different ways that religion functions for, for the two organizations and, and how faith is called upon um, as they try to meet their missions. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it was a, it was a puzzle that eluded me, actually, for a long time. My, my research generally before this project and, and still has to do with the varying ways that faith informs um, people's participation in public life, as well as the broader political culture in which they are operating. So it was something that I, that I knew was going to be important, had, had gotten me interested in these groups, was that faith was an aspect of their work. Um, but as you noted, it, it, it is not always as straightforward as it is in, in the case of some other sort of faith-based social movements that have been more studied in the past. And so there were a couple of things that were counterintuitive. One of those was that the more progressive group, the, the group I call interfaith, was actually more explicitly faith-based. And by that, I mean that they organized through religious congregations. They 
used faith language in their everyday activities. They were often joined publicly by members of the clergy, um, and and they were very conscious about how they did that. They often included um, clergy from multiple faith traditions in order to convey their sort of interfaith inclusivity. But but nonetheless, they did use religious leaders. They also um, very consciously identified themselves as people of faith when they spoke publicly and made demands of public officials. And so when they advertised events with elected officials, they invited them to meet with the faith community um, within their within their district. And so they were very conscious about identifying themselves as people of faith. And this is surprising on many levels, and in particularly because, at least within, within sociology, but in many disciplines, we often associate religious-based activism, particularly today, with more conservative activism. And our vision of this is dominated by the religious right. And so being able to see how this played out in a more progressive group, and particularly in an interfaith group, um, offered opportunities to to highlight some different dimensions of that. Um, in the t- in the case of the Patriots, they also differed from that standard image that we have of the religious right, and they differed from that more than I expected at the beginning. Um, the National Tea Party was very um, explicit about distinguishing what they were doing from the religious right. Um, they, you know, very specifically said, we are not the religious right. We are not going to be um, divided by some of the same issues that have divided conservatives in the past. And they very explicitly sought to bring together religious conservatives with libertarians and more moderate conservatives um, who, in their minds, supported things like limited government um, and individual effort, um, but didn't necessarily have a strong view on something like abortion. They wanted to bring all those people together um, under a, a broader banner of supporting constitutional principles. But at the same time, they also came together around the idea that the country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles and that at its root, American culture and American values were Judeo-Christian values. And so this was an incredibly important part of how they understood what it meant to be American um, and how they interpreted the founding documents um, and the their vision of what citizenship should look like. And so tracing what that meant to them and how that came through in their practices um, was a was a complicated part of the project, but one that I think um, again offers us some insights into more complicated ways that religion animates American public life. Now there's this other dimension that seems to the the two groups share, which is the focus on uh, holding government accountable. And there's this sort of populist streak that runs through these very different groups. I wonder if you talk a little bit of how they act this out. That is, how they see how they see holding government accountable uh, as a part of what they do, uh, whether it's in their strategy or their tactics. Uh, how does this factor into the way these two organizations operate? Absolutely, and that was really one of the one of the things that popped out to me most clearly once I started focusing, as you mentioned, on the sort of means through which they were doing their work as opposed to the ends, is that they both were very explicit. They used the language of holding government accountable, and they really organized a lot of their work around doing that. And 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 as you note, there was a populist dimension to that. So when we think about what it means to be populist, there are lots of definitions and disagreement about this. But at the most basic level, we can think about it as 
as having sort of an identity of, of oneself as representing the voices of ordinary people, um, which was which was true of both of these groups, even though they framed that a little bit differently, and of sort of positioning themselves as more legitimate or authentic voices in a democracy than some sort of illegitimate elite. Um, and again, both of those both of the groups spoke in those terms, um, although they, again, identified that elite somewhat differently. Um, but for both groups, government itself was illegitimate if it did not take into account the voices and the values and the knowledge of ordinary people. And so they spoke of this idea of government of the people, by the people, for the people as a way of describing that. Um, and so it was really a very... Um, sort of empowering way of understanding what their role in a democracy should be. And so their task was to figure out how to do that. And they faced a number of barriers, um, as do most ordinary people. Um, as I describe, that has to do with the fact that policy issues are really complicated. Um, and most of the issues that they wanted to get involved in, they felt like they didn't have the requisite knowledge to take on their elected officials or other policymakers um, when they were telling them, you know, just trust us, we have your best interests at stake. They weren't able to really argue with that. And so they had to overcome that. They had to, of course, um, organize in order to um, sort of expand the power that they each have as individuals, because and part of the reason they joined the group was because they realized that as individuals, they were not going to be able to exert the kind of power they needed to hold government accountable. Um, and they also faced a number of other barriers, making their voices heard and sort of forcing their elected officials to listen to them um, and to not just give them lip service. And so right, both of the groups faced similar kinds of general hurdles. Um, each group faced sort of different specific versions of that. But when I started looking at it, I realized that they were overcoming those hurdles in, in generally similar ways. So as I noted, they were very focused on education. So they would educate themselves about issues and about the process. And so for them, knowledge is power. That's the, the phrase that the leader of the Tea Party group would often say. And for her, just, you know, for them, they would read lots of news and they would try to, they would get together and talk through these issues. Um, the way that they developed knowledge was a little bit different within interfaith. And this was ultimately what I found and became interested in was that they both were trying to inform themselves and to organize um, collectively in order to exert the power they needed to demand that government listen to them and to be accountable to their communities. But the ways that they did that looked a little bit different. And um, I trace those differences to different understandings of how the groups understand what it means to be a citizen in general. And I can go into more detail talking about that. But for now, just one example I'll give is that um, the Patriots viewed um, the sort of education process as a very individualized pursuit. And they, you know, were all copious, you know, writers and readers and they read lots of news articles and they described this, their processes. I just read and read and read and I read from lots of different perspectives. And then we get together and we talk about issues and we have a lot of disagreements, but that's how we sort of have tried to inform ourselves. It's just being more, you know, attuned to the news. Now in a digital environment, it's, it's very difficult to know which news sources are right and wrong. And they were emerging sort of in the beginning of this moment where there was a proliferation of more partisan um, and ideologically divided news sources. So navigating that was complicated for them. 
Um, but that was how they worked on it. In interfaith, they did this much more collectively. They would go and have meetings with elected officials or with um, people from nonprofits who were experts on issues, and they would ask them questions about issues. They would have public meetings where they would be able to ask people questions about issues. And so their process was much more collective in terms of how they informed themselves. And then the ways that they understood what to do with, with the knowledge that they had created was also subtly different. Of years out from when you collected your data, these are these are data that that roughly speaking uh, collected during the Obama years. Uh, do these groups remain active? And and if if you if you know whether they remain active, have they adjusted to our, our somewhat changed political times? So yes and no. So the the actually the two groups that I studied largely wound down. Um, shortly after I left the field um, in their current forms, but they each reformed in different ways. And this is not uncommon. It's actually quite common, particularly in the community organizing world to sort of disorganize and reorganize. Um, and so it's a, it's a common way that groups sort of remain replenished and keep their relational bonds fresh and so a number of the people that had been in both groups are still currently active in other iterations of the groups that I studied. But at the same time, particularly on the Tea Party side, the grassroots activity has diminished significantly. Um, the members of the group that, that I studied described it as moving from what they call Tea Party 1.0 to Tea Party 2.0 to Tea Party 3.0. And this was already underway while I was doing my field work. And I describe it in the book. And, and so what they see themselves doing now, and many of them are still active, is working much more individually at local levels to infiltrate their local Republican parties and to shape the, you know, who are the candidates going to be that we have a choice between? What are the kinds of issues that are going to be prioritized in the party at the local level? And as one of the people that I got to know put it, you know, at the beginning, we did big rallies. We got our name out there. People knew who the Tea Party was, and that was great, and that had its place. But we're not in show business anymore. We're going, you know, back to sort of our individual kind of action. And this was particularly a result of a, a conflict of sorts that they had within many of the local groups, which had to do with a mismatch between the requirement for collective action that a lot of the early activities were requiring of them and the fact that they ultimately believed that they were individual actors, um, that they were sort of individuals coming together in a temporary and very fluid way um, because that was in their best interest, but that these groups were things that they could move in and out of at any time, that they didn't speak with one voice. They were welcome to have different opinions on issues. They didn't endorse candidates. This was a really important um, sort of aspect of how the group that I studied understood their identity as citizens. Um, and so it became much easier for them to move into the kinds of activities that did not require them to coordinate their action and speak um, as a collective. The, other group, Interfaith, of course, is organized through the idea of speaking collectively 
And that that's not only a politically effective way of organizing, but also the sort of appropriate way that citizens should organize in a democracy. And it's rooted in the idea that individuals might have individual interests, but it's the responsibility of communities to work together to figure out what the common good is across all of those individual interests. And so for them, doing that work of coming together across multiple faith traditions, multiple classes, multiple races, multiple ethnicities, you know, multiple languages in, in some cases, um, helped them to determine what sort of how the various interests that existed within their communities intersected in what they called the common good. They then felt that they could communicate that more convincingly to their elected officials. And so just really fundamental ways of understanding what it meant to organize and that shaped how they then continue to organize going forward. Um, and there are still a number of groups that are doing the kind of work that Interfaith was doing. And many of the people who were involved with that group are now involved with other area groups. Uh, the book again is titled Prophets and Patriots, Faith and Democracy Across the Political Divide. Books published by the University of California Press. The author who you've been hearing from is Ruth Bronstein. Ruth, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Heath, for the opportunity.